Hector Berlioz was in absolutely no doubt about the worth of the opera that we're going to see tonight, Benvenuto Cellini. He wrote a variety of ideas, a vitality, a zest, and the brilliance of musical colour such as I shall never perhaps find again. That phrase, never find again. Benvenuto Cellini is perhaps another of Berlioz's musical orphans, shuffled between various artistic foster parents and which we've only come to love and appreciate for their true worth and value in the past 50 and 60 years. And that's well over, of course, a century since the first performance of this opera at the Paris Opera in 1838. Benvenuto Cellini began life in 1834 as an opera comique. That's to say it had spoken dialogue that linked a succession of musical numbers. It seems that the management, or the manager of the opera comique, didn't care for this opera semi-seria. Perhaps it wasn't comique enough. Anyway, a year later, a second version, in which the French romantic poet Alfred de Vigny helped to revise the original libretto, um, encouraged the opera itself to accept Benvenuto Cellini for performance, although the censor insisted that Pope Clement VII, who's commissioned the statue of Perseus that's to be cast by Benvenuto Cellini, the Perseus who slays the Gorgon Medusa, the Pope couldn't actually appear on stage. So at the first performance, the Pope became a cardinal. But even so, the Parisian audience still voted with their feet. There were just three more performances of this opera in 1838, and then nothing for 13 years, until Franz Liszt, now in charge of music at Weimar, with the kind of purse that presumably all artistic directors continue to dream of in the middle of the night, revived the opera in a heavily revised version by Berlioz at Weimar. It's only since the 1960s that we've returned to the two-act Paris version. Sometimes we've spoken dialogue, though sometimes, like tonight, we've sung recitatives. It's clear that Bellas himself hadn't read Benvenuto Cellini's memoirs, that bandit of genius is what he called him, until after he returned from his own visit to Rome and to Italy in 1832. But if the opera celebrates Rome and its cultural triumphs, then it's not the Rome that Berlioz had visited in the early 19th century, a shadow, he thought, of its former imperial glory. This is Renaissance Rome, ruled by a dictatorial papacy who are passionate, or that is passionate about art, and in the grips of a carnival when the opera begins. And Terry Gilliam's production that we're going to hear tonight, and you can see images from the production on the screen behind me all the way through our time together, it really is the carnival to end all carnivals. The plot is relatively simple. Cellini is supposed to be casting that statue of Perseus for Pope Clement. In fact, he's busy pursuing Teresa, the daughter of the papal banker Balducci, who has decided that Teresa is to marry not Cellini, <clears throat> but his rival, Fioramosca. Will the, girl get the, will the artist get the girl? Will he cast the statue? Well, it's nail-biting stuff right up until the end of the last reel. Sorry, the final pages of the score. <clears throat> we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore this remarkable opera, Benvenuto Cellini. And Noel will be joined by the mezzo-soprano Claire President, who's covering the role of Ascanio, by Christopher Hopkins, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff, and by Leah Hausman, who is the co-director and the movement director in this new production. But first, the historian, specialist in decorative arts, Philippa Dlanville. Will you please welcome Philippa Dlanville? (laughs) 
Philippa, is there a, a French connection within Cellini's life? Enormously strong. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Enormously strong. Francis, of course, had been, became a major patron, and Cellini worked for him twice uh, in 1537. This is Francois I. Francois I. Premier, Fontainebleau, the Old Louvre, and so on. And he, of course, was the eventual recipient of the wonderful Saliera, the salt, now the gold, earth, and, and sea salt, now in Vienna, of course, stolen some years ago, but luckily restored, found buried in a wood. And, the, and also the nymph of Fontainebleau, extraordinary carving in, in the Louvre. But, of course, France had been disturbing Italy for a very long time. The French had invaded in the 1490s, again in 1515 or so, and the Battle of Pavia, okay, 15 they'd been driven out. But Cellini, as a young man, had experienced all of that, so relations with France must have been a little bit strange for Italians. And these are cultural relations, quite as much as political relations. One thinks of the other great visitor from Italy, um, uh, of course, Da Vinci, who will come to the court of France. Indeed, and of course, Francis I was bringing uh, all sorts of people, as Henry VIII brought Torrigiano and Benedetto de Rovizzano. I mean, there were this wish to pull these clever, talented, uh, in touch with the ancient world Italians, and, and they became trophies. I mean, they became, in their own right, trophies, these clever, interesting, difficult men. We're fairly certain that Berlioz himself didn't read uh, Cellini's own remarkable memoirs until he himself returned from Rome. How closely did his librettists work with Cellini's memoirs? It wasn't published in French, the Vita, until 1822, which is really quite late because the, the other, the English, had been reading it since the 1770s. But the, uh, they compressed. There are accuracies in the sense of the drama of Cellini, his personality, his murderous attitudes, his emotional ups and downs, and the immense skill, the immense skill that he had. I mean, the, as we know, the casting succeeded, although it took 10 years to do it. The 10 years in which he worked on the Perseus were long after the Pope was dead, and they weren't even for a Pope. They were for his patron in, in Florence, for Cosimo. So the librettist has chosen a more dramatic or the librettist, such a, a dramatic personality to be the patron, the Pope, rather than uh, a, a Florentine duke. And is it also an imagined Rome? I suggested that it was Renaissance Rome under the kind of autocratic papacy, but is this a sort of a French nostalgic version from a 19th century version of what Rome ought to be like? This is absolutely correct, the romantic idea. After all, Rome had been sacked in 1527, and indeed Cellini claimed to have killed two major military figures. He was, on, he was helping with the forts. He was and certainly involved in the campaign, as all uh, papal employees were, of course. But he... There's a kind of, um, what shall I say, yes, it is a compression. There is a, there is a sort of um, fiddling around with it. The carnival certainly existed, but not in the form we now see it. And the um, Rome had become denuded of craftsmen because of the sack. The Pope himself left 1532. There were only 30 goldsmiths left in Rome, which had been this great artistic centre. So, it's, it, it, yeah, it's an imaginary Rome. Is it really Paris in disguise? <laughs> yes, I think one of the curious points 
that doesn't really come out in the discussion, and probably is only interesting to people interested in metalwork, as I am, is that there was a very real panic in the early 19th century about the handmade and the loss of the handmade and the arrival of industrialization and mechanization. And both in England and in France, we see Prince Albert setting up the V&A and all that and the design schools. But the same thing was happening in Paris. Very significant exhibitions in the, 50, in the 1830s trying to emphasize that they still did have these hand skills. They could still do this beautiful work. Because in fact, of course, what was selling was the mechanically made, whether it was gold or silver, or in other, other metals too. The, the opera ends, no secret everybody, uh, with the Perseus <laughs> being cast. Um, but there's a good deal of excitement on our way there. I, I wonder to what extent that the operas claim in the libretto that, that, that what in fact Cellini is doing is something remarkable in casting this huge statue is indeed true. Is there something technologically extraordinary about what he achieved? He was extraordinary. And we don't just have to take the Vita, which after all, takes 10 pages to describe how long it had taken him to acquire the right earth, to get you know, particular kinds of earth made better clay than others. And of course, the core, the original core is clay, um, well, well, wax, then clay. And then for the casting, you have the, 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 the clay body. Then you have the wax, which then poured away and the lost wax technique, which he describes brilliantly. I mean, it's the first person to describe it. Theophilus in the 12th century gives a kind of version, but it's very short. He clearly knew he was doing something exceptional. As I say, it took 10 years to achieve all the preparation. One supposes that what really interests Berlioz is actually something that is particular to the 19th century. It is, first of all, the idea of the hero, um, and particularly the hero who stands slightly to the edge of his society. This is Shelley's unacknowledged legislator, isn't it? He, well, both men, both Cellini and Berlioz, one can see the parallels, not wanting to conform, obsessed about detail, but wanting to make it look as though what they were doing was easy always looking for patrons and then falling out either with the patrons or with the patrons' officers, the agents, the bureaucrats who weren't going to pay their bills. Always looking, what was it, Berlioz wanted an orchestra of 200 people? And, and there was no way anyone was going to pay for that. And Cellini desperately looking for, in the end, 40 workmen worked on the Perseus. I mean, it was a huge cast of people who had to be paid. But there's something presumably significantly different from the way Cellini would have regarded himself within that group of 40 and the way that Berlioz as a, a, an artist, a musician, would have regarded himself as part of the Romantic movement. Creative genius? Is it really so different? Emos, enormous emotional ups and downs, getting energy from the creative act itself but also needing an audience and also, or I should say, a sympathetic reception and also needing someone to pay for it. So there's that very complicated mix, which is true for both men. The, the other idea that, that is here, for both, both perhaps both men, is the idea of making something, Perseus, making an opera, that will not be understood by everybody, something that's going to be difficult because you're going somewhere no one has been before. Ahead of their times, both of them. The Perseus with that extraordinary, the Medusa, the head, with, I mean, just cast on a very, the arm is the only thing that's holding it up, and the doubt about whether it could actually be done. And indeed, his patron, the Duke, asked, questioned Cellini, very closely, because of course it was going to cost a lot in the metal they were going to use. The, I mean, literally, the raw raw materials, apart from the workmen, were going to be very expensive for the Duke, and there were difficulties about paying. He never did get paid, I don't think, properly. But that was extraordinarily difficult technically to get it to pour, and he had to throw his own household pewter into the furnace to make sure that the metal would work, because there were no rules then. Nobody actually knew what the right mix was. Nobody could measure the temperature. He had to do it by eye or by 
and I experienced like baking a cake. You had to kind of feel it was almost done if you're using an argo. You know, it's not, it's not a science yet. Well, one of the other ways of, of, of seeing the end of the opera is to see that it's the triumph of art over money. Is that, is that being too simple, do you think? He does say at one point in the opera, Berlioz puts into Cellini's uh, mouth, the words that he would go and run away with Teresa for love, that he would abandon this whole huge project. But I think that's frustration rather than concern. About yes, it is about art, because in the end, he is prepared to make every sacrifice. All his creative work gets thrown in. I mean, that's a very strong... And the, and the rich irony about this opera, four performances only, and then this huge long gap and only List Rescue. I mean, in a sense, the, op the, the history of the opera vindicates Berlioz's own notion of the outsider Didn't artist. Do you think that mannerism goes in and out of fashion? And mannerism, this opera is a kind of mannerism, a maniera. I mean, it's not straightforward, classical, traditional, conventional. And there are times when that is acceptable and enjoyable, and there are times when it simply isn't. Philippa, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now um, by the mezzo-soprano Claire Presland, who, as I've said, is covering the role of Ascanio, uh, the young uh, man who looks after Benvenuto Cilli. And we're also joined by Christopher Hopkins, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Will you please welcome Claire Presland and Christopher Hopkins. Claire, I'm going to, unfortunately, make you sing for your supper before you sing for us, but um, just tell us a little bit about who is Ascanio. So Ascanio is uh, Cellini's business manager, his agent, as it were. And, and in the sense that he's the one who does all the negotiation, do you That's think? That's right, yeah. And um, he is absolutely um, spurring Cellini on, and of course, because if Cellini doesn't make this... Um, this sculptor, then he's affected and he doesn't get his commission. So it's very important for Scania that he doesn't have a meltdown. Is, is he also not only, as it were, the, the financial manager, uh, the guy who, who needs to balance the books and keep mm. everything, but is he also, in a curious way, the conscience of the artist? Is he the conscience of Cellini? Yeah, I think it's... Um, quite a complicated relationship actually that Ascanio and Cellini has perhaps his his conscience um but certainly um his strength and his spirit and his motivation and uh he certainly spurs him on and reassures him when he when he requires it it's a trouser role mm -hmm. and, and I met says are born to do trouser roles yeah. is there anything significantly different about this trouser role than say any of the other ones that we're more um, familiar with it's incredibly high, very, very high. The, the tessitura is, is um, well, the range is, is enormous. Um, I, don't, I don't know of any other trouser rolls, in fact, that where you sing a number of top Bs. Um, so that's quite, un <laughs> quite unusual, yeah. Um, and, I mean, we were discussing even before um, the, the talk this evening, uh, it's almost soprano. Um, there may be many reasons why why that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it is quite unusual. And and did you do research for the role? Did you decide who Ascania was and what you thought about where he lived in Paris, all the kind of things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's your job as as a singer to to always do an enormous amount of research. But uh, it's it's interesting with covering because of course we don't have. Um, 
I, we need to imitate, our job is, is to imitate in some way. So what was really wonderful um, with this is that um, the subplots for every character has been um, thought about so, so, so deeply. Um, so there was a certain amount of research, of course, I, I did before um, coming to the first day of rehearsals, but um, it was a really exciting experience for me to to hear about the, the character that's been created and indeed the character then... Sh share some of the on. things that, that came perhaps as a surprise when you arrived. Um, that he's after Teresa, maybe. He's after Cellini's bird. Um, that... Yeah, the, the, the idea of him being um, very much an agent um, for Cellini um, and everything that that requires, I thought was... I mean, of, of course, it's that's apparent, but... Um, yeah. I That's love the cheroot that you have all the way through. Yeah. It's both a symbol of your authority, but also when you're with uh, Teresa, there's no doubt what she's on your mind. I well, think. quite, yeah. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's uh, quite vivid. <laughs> and, and what's it been like working with Terry Gilliam and his team? Amazing. I mean, Terry is a legend and is legendary, and um, I think it's a real honour for for everyone uh, working on this project, and indeed all of you guys who are, are going to watch the show, to be um, welcomed into to Terry's world and his artistic ideas, and yeah, it's really quite something. Lots of toppies, you've said. I mean, a role that, that, that sits naturally for a soprano, yeah. but is cast a bit. So what are the other difficulties? Uh, it's relentless, but I think it's the same for every character. It's... Uh, it's a real beast of a piece, um, Cellini, and um, it's incredibly challenging for every single um, role and the chorus and the orchestra. Um, it's, a, it's a real, real workout, um, both dramatically and vocally and musically. It's sometimes said that Bellows is more interested perhaps in the orchestra than in the, the singers and the vocal line. Is that a, a frightful calumny? I mean, mm. is he actually interested in the singers? <sighs> Berlioz's writing is an interesting one. Um, it's, it's just really hard, um, <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be comfortable to... Well, you're not going to show us yeah. just how hard it is. What are you going to sing for us? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to sing Escanio's second, second aria. And, and just give us a little about the situation. Where are we when you sing uh, this? So he's really, really fed up, and he's very, very stressed out because uh, Cellini has had, um, is all over the place. He's going to be hanged um, if he doesn't uh, complete the sculpture. So he's, he's in a bit of a panic.
Clara and Christopher, thank you both very much indeed. Um, Christopher, um, had you ever seen Benvenuto Cellini before you began to work on, on the show? No, nope. I'd never seen it. Um, <laughs> I barely even heard of it, actually. Um, I, sorry to say, but uh, um, it's one of those pieces... I mean, it's not done very much because it's so difficult. Um, and so I only really knew it in passing, um, you know, when you're discussing Troyen or Beatrice and Benedict and so on. And I knew a, a little bit of it from... Um, from the Roman Carnival overture. Mm. Um, uh, and I'd heard the overture a couple of times as well, because that's such a great, flashy piece of... And, and when you did open the score, what was yeah. your impression? Um, horror, I think, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified. Um, I came into it quite late, actually, into the whole process. So um, my, my first day was picking up the score at 9.30 and then straight into an actor's call at 10.30, which involved singing all the parts to... The carnival scene, which was um, pretty, pretty <laughs> horrific. <laughs> that, that, um, you will see, ladies and gentlemen, is no mean achievement. It's, no. Um, well, it was pretty rough and ready. But, um, I mean, the, 
it is such a difficult score for everyone, for the singers, for the orchestra. I mean, the, the, Leia and Terry have done such an incredible job staging the whole, and it's such a beast. And the carnival scene in particular is, you know, where do you start? And how long do you have? You, you, know, you, could, you could do it for years and years. Um, so that, I think my first impression was, um, was how difficult it was, but then getting to know the piece, how much fantastic music there is in it, actually. There's a lot of silly music, and there's a lot of energetic and, you know, almost off-the-rails stuff. But um, between all that, there's some really, you know, beautiful stuff. And, and, and distinctly, Berlioz's own voice all the way through. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there's so many voices. There are bits which... Um beautiful bits which could almost be Bellini or something and, and then there are bits which could be um, which could be Wagner I mean I, 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 it's a shame that there isn't more written about this piece actually because um, I think it stands in such an interesting place um, in Berlioz you know it's several years before his treaties the famous treaties where he discusses how to orchestrate and all the different instruments and so on it's seven or eight years before that so you feel him sort of learning about them in this, in this piece particular, I think. Is there then something particular about the instrumentation? Uh, what, the, what, he, the, the, what he chooses to write the score for? Well, there's lots of curiosities in it, yeah. Um, uh, bass clarinets, which were only maybe 10, 20 years old, I'm yeah. not sure. Um, the offerclyde, I mean, when have you ever heard a... There's this whole sort of 40 bars of offerclyde solo. Um, and I can't think of any other work, really, which, which uses that so much. There's um, a cannon, or three cannons at one point. Um, uh, it's just, uh, it's off the scale, really, for 1838. It's, there's nothing like it. The, the interesting thing about it is, 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 the, is to think about it, whether this is a, a work that is looking forward to all that is going to change, mm. be it Liszt, be it Wagner, the mm. so-called music of the future, or whether it's Berlioz wonderfully pulling together everything that we know, unfortunately, very little about, the music that had developed from 1789 through the terror of 1790 through the imperial period. In other words, in a sense, it's Berlioz both lo is looking backwards as well as looking forwards. No, I think you're right, yeah. And I think that's why it's so varied. There's no one... Uh, it doesn't feel like there's one colour running through it, almost. It, you, every, every scene is a totally different... Um, has a totally different feeling uh, to it. And you suddenly hear the music of the revolutionary period. You okay. hear Gossek, you hear these other composers who yeah. write these great marches, these great patriotic pieces in this opera Yeah, too. and the patriotic pieces, and in a way which he's not afraid to orchestrate in that sense. Um, it, there's a great Pope scene. Or this low brass stuff. Anyone else, I feel, would have written it with strings and brass, and it would have been gutsy. In it. But he just writes it for low brass and, and wind, and it's the most... You know, it's sort of, a, in a way, a subtle thing when you're listening to it. You wouldn't necessarily think about it, but, um, but it just adds a whole colour to it, which he, he, mu he must have been so uh, sure of what he wanted in the orchestra colour all the time. Uh, I suggested to Claire rather naughtily that, that, in a way, the drama in this piece is to be heard in the pit, not necessarily in the vocal line. And I'm going to ask you the same question. <laughs> um, no comment. Uh, <laughs> um, I suppose... No, only in only because it's so because it's so revolutionary his writing for orchestra. Um, but I don't I don't think it's at the expense of vocal line or or any or anything actually. It's just it's just what it is. You know, it's on the edge. <laughs> you you wet the appetite, my Christopher. Thank you very thank much you. indeed. <laughs> and, uh,
Ladies and gentlemen, our, our final guest is Leah Hausman, who is the co-director and the movement director in this new production of Benvenuto Cellini. Will you please welcome Leah Hausman? In a way, Leo, I want to start with, with, with the big question uh, in terms of opera form um, about Benvenuto It's a puzzle. It's a comedy, but it's also a serious grand opera. I mean, where do you have to decide you're going to strike a balance between, if you like, two of the roots of this piece, opera comique, but also grand opera? Well, as with any piece of work, you start from the music, and the music dictates. And I think with this piece, the, the thing that struck immediately was that you had a whole first half that was very much opera comique, that was full of wonderful, si funny situations, a little commedia dell'arte kind of story where you have the old father trying to marry off his daughter to a rich man, but she's in love with the young artist. Um, you have some very classic forms of uh, musical theater, this trio where you know you have three people, you have two, somebody hiding, and you have two people doing a love scene. Those things, like in a Fado farce, require certain logistics, which was one of the first things we had to do when we were talking about designing the piece. The second half of the piece, we go into a completely other territory. So you can't completely lose what we've had at the beginning. So I guess for, with, I mean, we never really spoke about it, but basically the way you make a through line is to invest in your characters. And because Terry and I are both so interested in storytelling and characters and situation, I think we invented a lot of things. I mean, we talked about Ascanio. Ascanio isn't written to be his business manager or his agent. He's called his... Uh, assistant or his uh, apprentice, that's what he's called. He's, uh, in the French, he's meant to be a very young boy. And uh, in some of the translations, he's called my beamish boy. Well, we decided that that was not the kind of Cellini we were interested in. So we invented the idea of him being the business manager, the agent, the guy, because there's so much in the story about money and about making it, and this contradiction between art and money. Uh, so. Visually, um, the, the production is sumptuous, but the kind of, the, it seems to me at least, uh, the, the principal ideas come either from Piranesi, from that celebrated sequence of Prince Cartery, the prisons, these imagined prisons, but also Honoré Daumier, the great 19th century uh, draftsman. In other words, Paris and Rome, Rome in the 18th century, Paris in the 19th century, collide in your verse. Is that right? Yes, I suppose Terry would really be, um, you know, he, he is really responsible for that, this visual world that you're seeing. My, my main tasks are to do with <laughs> staging and creating and characters and stories that we see on the stage, but we always um, wanted to, we didn't want to set it in one particular period. That was clear from the beginning. And um, there was something definitely about the Piranesi which appealed in terms of uh, Cellini and the complex world that he lived in. And in fact, we talked about Escher for a long time because mm. you don't know, the world of Carnival is literally takes you topsy-turvy. And in those, uh, those beautiful prints, you don't know quite where you are. You don't know what's up and what is down. 
Um, so uh, same with costume. We, we, didn't, we lent on a period, but we didn't stick exclusively to it. Tell us a little bit about the carnival. I mean, how long did the ideas for the carnival take to, to think of and then to work out? I mean, how, how long a piece of work is all this? Well, we have been working on this project for two years, um, and it's, we've had, I probably had more meetings on this, and I have worked harder on this than anything in my entire career. <laughs> I have listened to that carnival piece. I could sing it. <laughs> in my sleep and perhaps backwards. Because, of course, for somebody who's doing the staging, and really Terry's ideas are not to do with staging, they're to do with um, small stories and character and a visual world, but, you know, in order to do that... I, I, so, I, so I think probably I've, you know, I would say it's the first thing that I started to work on and I'm still working on it. <laughs> but... Um, you know, so there isn't, I, I wouldn't say, you, you know, the ideas developed over time and I also, I, uh, I had an initial idea which I threw out the window and then slowly this notion that we needed, it's kind of like four scenes in one. It's almost like four operas in one. I mean, in, indeed, there is a little pantomime in the center of it. Um, so those ideas developed. I got them to a certain point. I looked at how much time we had in the rehearsal room with the chorus and uh, made a few hard decisions then because you are given a very limited amount of time. And I, I thought, well, we need at least six sessions to get through this. That's three hours with, with all 72 of them, plus the 13 actors. And they gave me two. And I screamed and I shouted and I got one more. <laughs> and that's all. So, um, but I, we were speaking before, the music dictates, you cannot yeah. cut corners. Uh, it requires a certain amount of energy. So um, we went for it anyway. I, all I could say is I had the idea and I pushed like mad. And it was, you know, we keep using this word beast. It was, a, it was like Sisyphus. I kept pushing that rock and the next day it would be down again and I kept pushing that rock. So we've, we've landed up We've ended with something that is pretty much in the what I had in my head, <laughs> with a few variations. And, and Leah, does everybody in that scene have a story? Does everybody know who they are, where they're going, what they're doing? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the, the, the extraordinary sense of, 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 of everybody, as it were, part of one thing, but also individuals is what, what, what you see from the auditorium. Yes, of course. I mean, one, one thing that can happen because you've got so many people on stage, you all of a sudden go, oh, where, where is uh, Balducci at this point? I don't know, where'd he go? <laughs> Your main characters get lost in the melee of what's going on. The real task, because the ENO chorus, who is so extraordinary, were in the middle of an incredibly difficult season, and they had just opened, I think, Thebans. They were rehearsing, in the midst of rehearsing Cosi, they were trying desperately to learn this intensely difficult music, and none of them really knew the story, which is very rare. Usually they do come knowing much more, but they, I often said to them, so here we are, when they, and I start working, and I realize that they didn't know who Balducci was or who Fiora Mosca was. So a lot, of, a lot of the time was spent trying to get them to understand what is not, not a straightforward story. You have to really sit down and understand the ins and outs of what's going on, which monk is in which costume and who's trying to abduct whom and uh, so it, it um, 
I hope that now they, once, once they got hold of the idea of who those Roman people were, my task got a lot easier. Then they started to invent things. And that's the joy of, the joy of theater and the joy of opera. Are, are you here from the beginning? I mean, do you arrive on day one with Terry and the whole thing? Or do you, I mean, at what point do you arrive in, in, in one of these productions? Oh, I'm very much there from the beginning. I was there when he can, he had the, he had an idea that he wanted to do another, well, they told him it might be an idea to do another <laughs> opera. He said, I won't do it without The Leia. passive tense is the refuge of scoundrels. <laughs> so having done our Damnation of Faust, I think Terry realized that I was sort of indispensable to him. He, he didn't know what to do when the chorus arrived or indeed when the singers arrived. He's used to working with movie actors. You don't really direct Brad Pitt or Johnny Depp. You work with them. You, you throw ideas around. You, we're not talking about the stage as a particular animal. His movies are intensely theatrical, but his job is very diff it's a very different skill. Although all of the ideas, in, in many, many ways, translate beautifully. So I was his translator in terms of all of that. So I, I came from the very beginning, and I am there more than on day one. I am there before day one. We spent a week with the actors, and Terry is very much in the background there, and I was very much in the foreground trying to shape the piece uh, with no singers and no chorus and just <laughs> everybody singing in all the roles. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm there all the time. <laughs> and, 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 and did you both, when you began, have a very clear idea of what this was going to be? Or was there a process of evolution as, as the piece you know, grew and developed, as people became involved, chorus, singer, singers, soloists, and so on? Yes, Terry always said, with Damnation of Faust, from the first moment he listened to the piece of music, he had the idea, he had the concept. With this one, he kept saying, I don't have the big idea. I don't have the big idea. But the big idea came slowly. And that's how it works when you're creating. Sometimes you know immediately, other times it takes longer and you, you keep developing it, you keep changing it, and other people come into the scenario, like the designer and the costume designer, and the, talking about our casting, who we were gonna have in this production, and that begins, you, you begin to form around those decisions that you're making with those people. And I'm sure that, although some of the initial ideas, of course, are still there, Many things have changed, many, many things. The big idea, as, as Philippa and I were hinting at earlier, is this extraordinary relationship that exists in the 19th century and, of course, in the Renaissance and still today, the, the vexed and often problematic relationship of the artist in the society in which he lives. I mean, it's so clearly now the idea that is, runs right the way through this piece, I think. I'm so pleased that you say that. <laughs> because I think the difficulty of the piece is that it is a beautiful, it's a wonderful theme but it's one that's very hard to unearth in the first half because you're so uh, engaged with the story of the father, the love affair with Teresa, abducting Teresa, the carnival. And that takes you through, ooh, how long is the first half? Two Seven, 70 minutes, a, bit, a big, a big and, and somehow the statue is in the background. You, you sort of know about it, but not necessarily. So in fact, one of the first things I said is we have to make his problem evident from the beginning. And as much as possible, we need to keep reminding the audience that all of these other things are a diversion. 
that basically Cellini is a bad boy and he just doesn't want to do the thing that he knows he's supposed to do. So all of these things are a kind of diversion. Even Teresa is a diversion. He's not really in love with her to begin with. He's a serial seducer. He's got girls all over him. And Teresa, somewhere along the line, because she's a big challenge, you know, hard to get to, he has to sneak in to find her, and, uh, you know, it's the treasurer's daughter, definitely not his usual type. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, those kind of guys like challenges. <laughs> um, but somewhere along the line, he realizes that actually she's quite special because she's not your classic. She's not your classic and uh, uh, soprano role. She's very feisty. And I think that attracts him in a way that he, he, he that's unexpected. And therefore, all of these things are a way of him not doing the thing that he should be doing, which is working on his statue. And the irony there, of course, is that, in a way, not doing the thing that he ought to be, to be doing is licensed by the notion of carnival in society anyway, where you turn everything upside down and you're allowed not to do the thing that you want to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. In fact, you're required not to do it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're inhibited from doing it. And, uh, and he takes that on full-heartedly, and he uses carnival to his advantage in every way. But it all comes back to bite him. He can't pay the innkeeper. No. He can't pay the innkeeper, and he ends up in a, in a fight. He ends up killing somebody. And then the Pope gets involved, and police are involved, and he's, he's supposed to... He's trying to get out of town fast. Mm. That's, what's, that's what he comes back after Carnival. He says, well, great, guys, we're going to Florence. <laughs> Pack your bags. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Um, gentlemen, we have a little time for questions from any of you who would like to ask. If you'd like to uh, think about your question, put your hand up and there is the roving microphone and catch my eye and I will point the microphone towards you. Yes, a question there. The microphone's on its way. Thank you. Um, the last time I saw this opera was 10 years ago at the Met and your description of it, it, it I mean, this is such an exciting, wonderful piece. Why isn't it part of the canon, like Tosca or Rosenkavalier? I mean, all the, you can think of other operas that we see all the time with the difficulties that you have mentioned. So why isn't this a big one that we hear every year? Yeah, a question for you, I think. Well, um, yes, and a question for the finance director, really, because that's one of the main reasons you cannot do this. Uh, as frequently as some of the, those other operas. You have twice the number of chorus involved, and you have a very big cast, and there is a huge... It re the piece itself requires so much, so it's extremely expensive. Um, difficult for it to come around. We have, we have one stroke, two co-producers, but it's quite... The, and they are looking to other places, but finance has, has a lot to do with it. And, of course, it's just taste. You know, people haven't, they haven't become accustomed. I think now Berlioz is, is really receiving the attention that I think, that we all think he should have, yeah. that he deserves. So who knows, maybe we will see it more often, but you could say that the same. Troyen is not in the repertoire as much as some of the other, um, some of the, the other pieces, and it is fantastically long and expensive to do, and that's another reason that that isn't seen more often. Another, another question, in the front row. Um, so yeah, I was just interested, who, whose idea was it to stage Cellini? Like, where did that, who chose it? 
Was it Terry Gilliam? Was it ENO? Like, where did it... Because it, it said in the program it hasn't been done in London since the 70s. So it must be quite a, it's quite a strange decision. Well, I think I know how that happened, is that we, after we did The Damnation of Faust, John Barry said, I think you better do another opera. And um, I think Terry had already mentioned that he was interested, he wanted to make a film about Cellini. He'd read the autobiography ages ago, and John Barry said, you know, Berlioz wrote another wrote that opera, and he said, fine, I'll do that one. He hadn't actually listened to it, I don't think. <laughs> so when he listened to it, he went, oh my God, why have I chosen this opera? This is impossible. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was between John Barry, the artistic director of ENO, and Terry. Okay, thank you. There's another question over here. Could you tell us a little bit more about the music? Because I read that the Paris musicians uh, gave up after a couple of days and couldn't play it. <laughs> what, what have ENO done to make it more playable? <laughs> Christopher, I think that's a question for you. Yes. Well, uh, dare I say the ENO orchestra is better than the Paris orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, well, it's no easier than it was then, but um, they, they've put a lot of work into it and... I know. Uh, I remember Ed saying after the first orchestra rehearsal, um, <laughs> "How on earth are we going to do this?" Because <laughs> he looked green. He, uh, when he I saw just, him. It was exhausting. So join yeah. the club. Um, yeah. <laughs> We've been there for four weeks. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and it was difficult. And there's something about there's lots of facets of the music which are difficult. A that it changes a lot. There's no, there's you never feel really. I suppose the carnival is almost the only place where you feel there's actually. You, you don't stop an idea after a couple of minutes and do something else suddenly, you know. Um, so there's that facet of it. it I find it's on, what it looks like on the page is not really how it sounds somehow. And that's not just a vocal score thing. That's, uh, it, it, there's extra beats everywhere. There's passages which are, are written in the wrong place of the bar. Um, you'll get something like dum-dum-dee-dum. Uh, um, and then the second time it will come, dum dum dee dum. It just it, it shifted a quaver out all the time. And it's those sort of things which are, I mean, they're minuscule things in the grand scheme of it, but, but they're all the time. Every bar, it feels like there's something like this which is ready just to catch you out, you know. Um, and also then, and, and in a grander sense, the, um, the playing from the orchestra, um, I mean, this is aside from any issues with the singers or putting it on this huge stage, you know, with the, all the distance problems and that. Um, the orchestra has to be really sparkling and alive. You know, it's got to be like a Beethoven 7 or something all the time, this high, high energy. Um, and so to get that and combine that with the, uh, the sheer amount of music and amount of difficulty of reading the music as well, mm -hmm. apart from else, um, it's a huge thing to pull together. So, um, But, you know, we've got a great orchestra and a great chorus. And I'm afraid we've reached the end of our allotted time. Can I just remind you that this evening's performance begins at 6pm. Um, if you would like a drink before uh, the most exciting evening of your life, I'm unashamed about that, um, the Circle Bar will be open beforehand. Um, on your seats underneath your bottoms probably now are notices for next season's pre-performance talks. I do hope you will come again to these talks. Uh, we have one more this season next week uh, before the last production of English National Opera this season, The Pearl Fishers. In the meantime, can I thank all of you for being here on a warm day, but above all, our four
four guests. Claire Hausman, Philippa Glanville, Claire Preston, and Christopher Hopkins. Thank you all very much indeed.